This is a message from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. We pray that it will encourage you in your walk of faith. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Youssef or Leading the Way, please visit ltw.org. The word miracle is a word that is being used and abused in our modern time, that in some circles it came to define everything and all things, and in other circles it uh, became to be identified with magic and trickery and underhandedness, and still in yet other circles it is viewed with skepticism and with cynicism and disbelief. There was one of those skeptic Sunday school teachers who was teaching a group of sixth graders, bright-eyed, discerning kids. And the Sunday school teacher said that when Moses was leading the Israelites through the Red Sea, it wasn't really a sea at all. Then the teacher continued, he said, actually Moses and the Israelite walked across a two-inch of marsh, which is called the Dead Sea. Right at that point, one of these bright sixth graders Yelled out, he said, wow, then God really saved the day when he drowned the whole Egyptian armies in two inches of water. (laughs) A youth leader was uh, talking to a group of teenagers, and he was talking about uh, what's your favorite miracle. You know, teenagers at this time of the year, they move as fast as molasses going uphill. And uh, they do that anyhow, summer or winter. (laughs) Now, what's your favorite miracle? One of them chimed in and said, I like the one where everybody loafs and fishes. <laughs> Yet the scripture is very clear that the definition of a miracle is when God intervenes in the natural order with his supernatural power and changes things. The Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated this again and again. As God incarnate, as God in human flesh, He demonstrated His power and His miracles were foolproof. They were instantaneous. They had 100% success. None of that business, well, it's your problem, you don't have enough faith, it's got nothing to do with me. When Jesus performed the miracle, He performed the miracle. And when Jesus performs a miracle, he performs a miracle. Foolproof, instantaneous, with 100% success. Miracles were Jesus' demonstration of his power over nature. It was his demonstration of his power over demons. It was demonstrating his power over death, over disease, and over whatever hamper us in this life. Miracles where Jesus' demonstration of his amazing and astonishing power, and the power of that of his daddy. But John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, gives us another word for miracle. He uses the Greek word simeon. The word means a sign, translated into sign. Some of the Bible translations, modern translations you have, bring that out. It's a sign rather than a word miracle. For as far as John was concerned... Jesus' miracle were a definite sign, were a clear indication of who he is. As far as John was concerned, Jesus' miracles were a sign that he is the Messiah. As far as John was concerned, Jesus' miracles were a sign that he is the divine Son of God. 
And he tells us over and over again, he said, the disciples saw and they believed. He said, the crowd looked with amazement and they believed. He said in his gospel, he said, these signs were given to you so that you may believe. So miracles are not for shows, a side show. It is not for people to come and belong to a certain person who performs these magical things. No. They have one purpose in them, and that is that the hard hearts would turn to Jesus Christ and believe. That is the purpose of miracles. John records in his gospel eight altogether of these signs, these simeons. Seven before the resurrection and one after the resurrection. Each of these seven signs provide us with deep spiritual truths. They show us our inadequacy and Jesus' all-sufficiency. They show us our inability to cope and God's provision in Jesus Christ. In changing of the water into wine, Jesus assures us that He alone can change our life. In healing the sick, Jesus defeats the crippling deficiencies and disabilities in our life. In healing and feeding of the multitude, Jesus demonstrating His inexhaustible resources in the sight of the barrenness of ours. In walking on the water, He is contrasting our helplessness in the face of the awesome force of nature as we've been experiencing lately and His mastery over it. In the opening of the eyes of the blind man, He revealed our natural blindness and that He is the light of the world. In the raising of the dead, we see our total helplessness before death and Jesus' victory and defeat of it and victory over it. Each miracle has a significance and a meaning. Each miracle intended to point us to God and God's provision in Jesus Christ. Each miracle was to the glory of God and not for selfish reason. It is to the majesty of God and not just for our own fulfillment of our own needs. For every time you see a miracle, you notice the purpose of it and the end of that miracle. In this one, in John chapter 2, he said, The disciples saw and they believed. Some uh, folks who write books that are taught in seminaries (laughs) have uh, claimed that uh, some of these miracles are just as Jesus felt sorry for some folks and he just tried to help them along, and what, the way they were healed was all psychosomatic. Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Each miracle had a deeper spiritual meaning than just the miracle itself. Each miracle intended to convey a deeper biblical truth beyond the miracle itself. So in today's message, which we're going to look at in a minute, from John chapter 2 of Jesus changing the water into wine... It was a sign. A sign of what? Jesus just felt sorry for some folks and needed some beverage. And he said, well, you know, let's do some magic tricks here and give them some beverage. No. It was a sign of the life-giving power of Jesus Christ against the dead ritualism of Judaism. It signifies that there is a transforming power with Jesus. If you have not experienced that, you ought to. Jesus changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity. Jesus changes the water of Christless religion into the richness and the fullness of His grace. 
Jesus changes the water of uncertainty and legalism into the wine of liberty and freedom in Christ and eternal life. Jesus changes the water of the imperfections of the law into the perfect gospel of the good news. Jesus changes the water of the dreariness and the drudgery and the pain of everyday life into the wine of joy and contentment with Him. That's the purpose here. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 2, if you haven't already, beginning at verse 1. I think the story is familiar to most of us, I hope. Jesus had just begun His public ministry. About three days into the beginning of His public ministry, He got invited to this wedding. And uh, presumably the wedding, somebody is related to Mary, his mother. Some traditions say that Mary was the sister of the groom's mother. And if that is the case, it really explains why Mary was so deeply concerned about saving face and shame and embarrassment. I'm going to explain in a minute of this poor family for not being able to provide for the son's wedding. You've got to understand the ancient Middle East in mind. In ancient Middle East, there was a strong element of reciprocity in weddings. In fact, if you give your cousin Bill a gift at his wedding worth $100, you'll be absolutely sure when cousin Joe, cousin Bill is going to give him a gift worth at least $100, if not more. Tangled with legalism. Trust me, you don't want it. <laughs> I know this is so foreign to our world. But back then, it would not be unusual that certain legal action would be taken against the groom and his father by the father of the bride. If the groom and and his father did not provide adequately for the festivities of the wedding, he could be sued by the father of the bride. Some of you who are fathers of daughters wish we lived in those days. (laughs) You've already gone bankrupt putting a wedding together. But that was the job of the groom back then. You have to understand the Jewish wedding to understand the intensity of that situation. It wasn't just a nice thing that Jesus did. This goes far deeper than this, even in that context. Before a marriage can take place, a betrothal ceremony has to take place. And that betrothal ceremony is a lot more than just an engagement party or an announcement party. This was a contractual and a solemn pledging of the couple to each other. The betrothal ceremony was binding. And to break it, it would be equivalent to divorce proceedings today. (laughs) Not today, I mean uh, some time ago. Today is so easy. At the conclusion of this betrothal period, which (laughs) is negotiated between the parents, the marriage takes place. Normally the wedding would take place on a Wednesday night if the bride is virgin, and on a Thursday night, if she's a widow. And on the wedding night, the bridegroom and his male friend go out of his house in a procession to the bride's house. This happened at night, and therefore it is a very impressive torchlight procession. And as they come, the bridegroom comes to the bride's house, and he knocks on the door, And the father opened the door. He makes certain promises and solemn promises to the father of the bride. I like this one. And then when the father gives him to her, the bride and his groom walk back in this magnificent torchlight procession to the house of the groom 
where the wedding is taking place, where all the wedding festivities are happening in the groom's house, and ultimately that's where the bride is going to live. Sometime before the end of this particular wedding. Now, the wedding feast was not just a dinner and a banquet and a goodbye, I can't wait for you to go home. No. (laughs) The wedding festivities can take up to one week, and for some people it was longer. Night after night, celebrate the wedding. Celebrate that in a feast for seven days. And in other occasions, goes for two weeks. Sometime in the middle of the week, we don't know when. Day two, day three, day four, we don't know when. Sometime in the middle of that festivities, the wine ran out. Running out of beverage in the middle of your festivities means that you are too poor to provide adequately for your wedding festivities. And remember... This is not just an incident that's going to take place and be forgotten. This was going to cause this family embarrassment and shame. Is going to put a scar on that family in the midst of that community until they die. <laughs> Everybody will be walking there and for probably 30, 40 years and said, Ah, this is the house of so-and-so who could not provide for their son's wedding. That's how it was. You understand Mary's intensity, and you understand the significance of this. And it could be not only a scar, not only shame for the rest of that generation, they could have been sued by the father of the bride and a cause of embarrassment. Now in our culture, if something like this would happen, and you are there, some of you probably will get in the car and they talk about how cheap the host was, and then you forget it. Next day, it's forgotten. Not so in this culture. It's a lot more serious than this. Some people try to use this passage as an excuse for consuming an inordinate amount of alcohol. I heard it with my own ears. I don't know how many times. I stopped talking to drunks at parties. (laughs) Jesus changed water into wine, so it must be okay. Now, half drunk. Now, I'm going to burst your balloon today. (laughs) Most scholars explain that the wine of those days was so mixed with water that it had no more than probably two, maximum, 3% alcoholic content. And that is why the book of Leviticus, chapter 10, verse 9, makes a distinction between wine, which is the same word as used here, and strong drink. And there's a distinction between the two. It was a mixture of about three part water and one part alcohol. In other words, you would have to drink 22 glasses of this stuff to get the effect of two martinis. So no one can use this passage as an excuse for consuming alcohol. (laughs) Now I get back to my sermon. Up to this point in his life, the Lord Jesus Christ has not performed any miracle. In the apocryphal books, which I hope you don't read, but if you do, at least I'm warning you, a lot of fanciful stories there. But when Jesus was a boy, he made a clay of a bird and whistled at it and and it flew and stuff, kind of magic stuff. And the early disciples and the early apostles rejected that. That's why it's not in our canon, because it's not consistent with the eyewitness account of the apostles. This was his very first miracle, and John tells us so. 
But Mary knew. Mary knew who he was. Mary knew what the angel told her before his birth. Mary knew that she had conceived him while she was still a virgin. Mary knew that he was for 30 years as growing up. She knew that he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. So she asks if he would supernaturally intervene and save the whole generation of that family, the scar and the embarrassment and the shame. And by the way, in verse 4, in some translation it says, Woman, it doesn't mean rudeness here. It is a term of endearment. It's not rudeness. As we would say in the South, ma'am. So Mary, not taking this as a rebuke, she asks the servants, she said, you do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> she has such confidence. She has such trust that she knew he wouldn't let her down. Do you have confidence in Jesus that he will never let you down? He will never let you down. He said, I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you. So Mary orders the servants, and the servants come with these big jars that are left in every Jewish home, mostly used for water, for purification, for washing before eating, for Jewish purification. These six jars, average of 20 gallons in each, to fill them with water. When Jesus asked them to fill them with water, they filled them to the brim, and there Jesus changed the water into wine. And of course, to the astonishment of the Master of Ceremonies, He's never tasted anything this good. So he goes to the groom who presumably was so thankful that the day was saved and, and his life was saved and was glad that this had happened. That is the miracle in itself. But on a deeper level, this miracle or the sign, as John would call it here, bring joy into life that is full of boredom. It is a sign that Jesus can bring joy into the life that is empty. It is a sign that Jesus can, regardless of how far you have gone down, can pull you back again. No matter how much you have run out of the water of life, He can restore the wine of life. The plea here that they have no wine goes much deeper than the need for the beverage for these folks to save face and embarrassment. It is a cry of every joyless heart who is without Christ. Because Christ alone can restore order. And that's my first point. Apart from Christ, I don't care how rich a person is, how powerful he or she may be, how socially connected they may be. Without Jesus Christ, the wine of life will run out. Ernest Hemingway may have seemed to have had everything. But his life was empty, and he took away his life. Marilyn Monroe seemed to be glamorous and famous and rich, and everything seemed to be going her way. But her life was empty. The wine of life has run out, and she took her own life. There are so many who seem to have everything in life, and you think they've got it all. But in reality, without Jesus Christ, the wine of life has run out. And they are empty. Or if they have any water left, it is bitter water. Not only do many non-Christians may feel that the wine of life has run out, but there are countless believers who find their Christian life to be a drudgery. 
To them, their worship has become boring. Bible study is nothing more than just storing up some dry biblical facts and doctrinal concepts. Their faith is burdensome. They are living in legalism with all its false demands. Their prayer life has become dutiful instead of being joyful and exciting. Their Christian life has long lost its joy. Their wine has turned into water. Their wine has run out. The wine often runs out early in life. Consider these facts. Some 6,000 American high schoolers take their life every year. Two million more try to kill themselves. Another six million seriously consider it. Many men and women are surrendering to their midlife crisis. And they wonder aloud, is life worth living? Only the Lord Jesus Christ and through the Lord Jesus Christ... Who can exchange the water of life into the wine of his joy? Only in the Lord Jesus Christ, because he and he alone can turn the drudgery, the grief, the bitterness, the failure, the bondage of life into the sweet beverage of true happiness. In reality, the time comes to all of us when we run out of wine. The drudgery of cleaning house, buying groceries, paying bills, changing diapers, getting meals ready, endless business meetings. Add to this monotony of life, the disappointments in life, the hurts in life, the grief in life along the way. And then you add them up together, and folks are like Mary saying, we ran out of wine. But like Mary, we must not try to run away from the situation. But with confidence, with assurance, turn to the one who can turn your stumbling blocks into stepping stones. With confidence and assurance, turn to the one who can turn the vengeance and can turn the bitterness and can turn the anger into the sweet beverage of comfort and assurance and contentment. Turn to the one who can turn the hatred that is seething and the defeat into victory and love. Turn to the one who can turn your hurt and your disappointment into his divine appointments. Jesus restores order, but secondly, Jesus reverses nature. According to the custom of the day, of course, what happened at that wedding was the reverse of what they naturally do. They normally keep the inferior wine, the cheap wine... The stuff we probably had instead of three parts water, one part alcohol, maybe five parts water, one part alcohol. They always reserved that to later on in the festivities. After several days, everybody around talking said, what a generous people these guys are. And later on, they bring the bad wine. Maybe day three, day four into the festivities. But the master of ceremonies thought that the groom has reversed the natural order. He thought that he kept the good wine all the way to the end. He thought he was stupid. Please listen, because this is the way Satan and his demons work. And they try to do that in your life and in mine. They try to do that with everybody. They serve their best first and their worst later. The young drinker enjoys the liquor in the early years of his or her life, but does not realize that the time will come when it will bite you like a snake. Addiction can turn a man or a woman of distinction into a derelict. In the gutter. Illicit sex may feel good in a moment of passion. 
But the result of unwanted pregnancy, unwedded motherhood, the temptation of abortion, the contraction of AIDS, and all of that often follow. When Satan turns good into bad, Jesus turns the bad into good. That's our God. He reverses the natural order of Satan. The pleasure of sin may be enjoyed for a season, but then comes the wages of sin. I'm getting excited about what I'm going to say. (laughs) Jesus works the opposite way. He's a great God. He reverses it. He reverses that world's natural order. He may allow you to enter into the wilderness, but make no mistake about it. Jesus will always take you to the promised land. Jesus may permit a cross in your life, but he always will order resurrection in your life. Sorrow may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. This miracle reminds us of something else. It reminds us of another wedding that's going to take place. And when that wedding takes place, Jesus is now going to be a guest. (laughs) He's going to be the bridegroom. And we're going to be the bride. In his presence will be fullness of joy and his right hand. The pleasures forevermore. As I bring those words to conclusion, I want to tell you, let all who thirst, let all who run out of the wine of life, let all who are seeking, let all who are willing to trust him, let all who are willing to obey him be invited today. Come. Jesus not only restores order, he reverses nature. Jesus could have just created wine like that. I mean, he could have done it, could he not, from empty jars? But he didn't do it that way. I don't know why God does this. I don't know why the Lord Jesus does that. But the Bible teaches us again and again that often God's miracles take place after obedience. That obedience has to come first. Then the miracle. I want to ask you these questions as I'm, before I pray. Are you praying for a miracle in your life? Has God been speaking to you about an area in your life which you're not obedient? When you pray for a miracle, do you hear the voice of God saying, fill the jars with water first. Do what I'm asking you to do first. For it is right after your obedience that I will come and change the water that you put in those jars by obeying me into wine. Let's pray. Our loving Father, as we come in your presence, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us salvation free and without price. Because he paid the price on Calvary. Our Father, we come to you together. Speak and listeners, for we all have heard your word. Father, that we may surrender, that we may listen, and that we may be willing to put the water in the jars, that we be willing to obey. Father, we thank you for the many intervention of your supernatural power in our lives. And Father, we pray as the 
line of demarcation, the line of distinction between those who love you and those who say they love you or claim to love you, as it becomes deeper and wider, that you will help us to live in the supernatural, that we will live in your realm, that we'll see you as you would want us to see you. And we order our lives accordingly, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 